to question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. show i'm excited tonight folks welcome to night fright i'm your host brent holland get a pen and paper i'm going to give you my skype address because you're going to want to call our two incredible guests tonight not one but two that's right dr cyril wet donna kaufman as well now let me just read this about mr wet because most of the fans of this show will certainly know who he is and donna as well but i'm going to read this very quickly anyways Dr. Cyril Wett is the world's best-known medical examiner. Indeed, he is. You've seen him everywhere, folks. You've seen him on Larry King. You've seen him on CNN, ABC, CBS, CTV. Uh, CTV is the Canadian one, by the way, folks. Uh, you've seen him everywhere in the world. He is virtually the icon for medical, exa- for med- uh, medical examiners. Uh, Donna Kaufman, you will know this person as well. Um, she's written for Saturday Night Live, Arsenio Hall, Leno, Letterman. You know, if I go on all night with all these two guys' accomplishments, we will never get to a show. She's also a documentarian, and she wrote groundbreaking work on the O.J. Simpson trial, which we'll get to tonight. They both have put a new book out. They came together, folks, and they've got a great new book out. The book is called Final Exams. True Crime Cases from Cyril Wett. I'd like to welcome you both to the show. Now, folks, through the wonderful Internet, we're able to bring Dr. Cyril Wett from Pittsburgh and Donna all the way from California for your listening pleasure. Now, how great is that? Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, and thanks for inviting us. Thank you. Thanks, Donna. What part of California are you in, Donna? I'm in Los Angeles. Oh, show off. We're having a heat wave. Um, finally, our summer is here. Okay. Now, you know, you have to, you're going to have to tell me your address because we've got 35 million Canadians that aren't going through a heat wave right now. <laughs> yeah, come on over. <laughs> Start the barbecue. Trust me, Canadians will bring the beer. <laughs> All right. Can we start off? I want to go in a, in a little bit of a different direction. And um, Dr. Wett, Michael Brown, um, what can the forensics tell us about what happened there that we don't already know? Well, there um, are some things to be gathered, of course, from the anatomic location of the gunshot wounds. The four on the arms, one has to be careful with. While it was initially uh, stated by um, uh, Dr. Bodden, um, or at least so interpreted by the news media, that the shots had been fired um, with Michael Brown facing uh, the police officer. Um, While I don't dispute that as a real possibility, uh, it can't be stated 
with uh, any degree of certainty. The arms move in a variety of ways. While I'm talking, uh, for example, uh, uh, move your arm straight up in the air. Move it to the right. Move it across to your left shoulder. Reach in the back for your wallet. Reach it down to tie your shoelace. Um, do anything that you want. So you see um, palm out, palm up, which is the anatomic position of the arm. Hmm. One can't be certain about that. With regard to the two shots in the face and head, they do tell us something. Number one, a shot to the top of the head of a six-foot-four guy like Michael Brown can only have been fired from uh, somebody who was in a uh, standing position unless that person is uh, a seven-and-a-half-foot giant uh, that Michael Brown had to have been uh, facing down, that his head had to be essentially in a 90-degree position uh, bent at the waist. Likewise, the second shot that went in near the right eye traveled straight downward, uh, perpendicular to the ground, if you picture yourself standing up, and exiting from below the mandible, the lower jaw, and then re-entering the chest above the clavicle, the collarbone, and going into the chest. Now, um, that's not possible, is it, Uh, if you've got somebody standing up? But if you have him bending down 90 degrees, if you have the top part of his body essentially parallel to the earth, uh, then you can see how those shots would have been fired. So that leaves you with one of two possibilities. Either he was falling because presumably he was shot or ducking, juking, and trying to avoid more gunfire, or uh, he was bent down like a raging bull uh, charging the police officer uh, when the officer shot. So uh, those are the things we can learn from the gunshot wounds. They were all fired from a distance. So that doesn't help us. Uh, by that I mean beyond 18, 24 inches with a handgun. You don't see gunpowder residue. And you don't see stippling. Those are little black dots from the carbonaceous material that comes out of the muzzle and it goes onto the skin and produces these tiny superficial burns. Um, we don't know, at least I haven't heard, about the shot that, according to the officer, was fired in the car. Now, there should have been gunpowder residue found there on some fabric, on some part of the seat, because that shot... Uh, whoever fired it, whether the cop fired it or Michael Brown fired it or it was fired in the struggle for the gun, doesn't make any difference. The point is that that shot um, would have been fired at a distance of less than 18 inches onto whatever object in the car, uh, some part of the front seat uh, presumably um, would would show that. And I don't know um, the results of that testing. One other thing we don't know that could help a lot is where were the casings found uh, from what point were the bullets fired? And we have come to learn, based upon an audio tape, which I think was, has been tested, uh, checked out to be valid, uh, that there were nine or ten shots fired. Six struck Michael Brown. We know that. Everybody seems to agree on that. And that means three, some people say ten shots, but let's say three uh, others were fired that did not strike him. What was the position of the officer when those shots were fired? What was the position of Michael Brown's body? We don't know exactly uh, those numbers, at least I don't. And uh, then you get into some other questions about blood spatter pattern because nobody came to see the body, as I understand it, at least in terms of trained forensic scientists, criminalist forensic pathologists, for about four hours. The body was lying there. Um, and that makes changes, uh, too, in terms of the blood spatter pattern, etc. So we know something but there's a lot we don't know.
Folks, Dr. Cyril Wecht is joining us tonight with his co-author, Donna Kaufman. Donna's in Los Angeles. Lucky, lucky, lucky. Dr. Wecht is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How's the weather in Pittsburgh today, my friend? Uh, good night. It goes down uh, into the uh, mid-low 40s at night the last few days, but each day has been sunny in the high 60s or 70s. So we're having a decent fall. Okay, so you'll have to give your address out after, too. And <laughs> <laughs> we're looking at a new book they have. We went off track there for a second. The book is called Final Exams, True Crime Cases from Cyril Wecht. And also co-author, of course, is Donna Kaufman. www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book cover. We'll take you to a place where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home. Um, Donna, when you covered the O.J. Simpson case... You did some groundbreaking work there. Looking back on that, is there anything that you wrote about at that time that you may... Has it changed your perspective at all? Over Has time changed your perspective at all? Well, I... Um, <laughs> that, that case was a life changer for me because right. I was uh, happily employed as a TV comedy writer and uh, I... <laughs> I went to clean out my desk uh, from the Arsenio show after he quit his uh, show the first time. And uh, I went, uh, I thought, well, okay, I'll come back and, and look at a tape. I stuck it in a tape and hit record. It was the day of the slow speed chase. Mm. And, but I didn't know that at the time. All I knew was he was going to um, give himself up to authorities. And I knew that he was um, a batterer. And that week, I, which was when the bodies were found, um, knowing his background as a domestic violence um, perpetrator, I joined uh, the Internet, and I had to pick a screen name. And so I thought, okay, well, how does this make, make it O.J.'s guilty? And... Um, and then, I, and then I thought, well, if he's not guilty, I'll have to change that. Okay, well, all these years later, that's still my screen name. So there's oh, one shit. answer. Uh, but the other thing is, um, I did come home and I watched the slow speed chase, and I went, holy moly, i got to be a part of this team that's going to certainly investigate this and go forward uh, to a trial. And I was. I worked on the Inquirer, National Inquirer team. And it, it just whetted my appetite. And slowly I stopped writing comedy. And, uh, and I, was, I did do Mad TV, which was a series for a while. Um, and then I, I kind of got out of comedy and went full bore into true crime. And, uh, and I don't regret it at all. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm grateful for OJ uh, for giving me that uh, career change. But I'm also glad he's behind j behind bars um, now. I wish he had been, you know, 20 years ago. Um, but I'm not happy with why he's behind bars now. I, I think that was just a really horrible miscarriage of justice. Um, but that's another story. But anyway, so that's that's my that's my rambling for why I'm why I do what I do. Doctor Weck, do you feel the same way about OJ? Well, I. Um I, I definitely very strongly agree with Donna's last statement. Uh, you don't 
um, imposed a penalty, as that judge in Nevada did, uh, for the alleged crime that he had committed of such a magnitude because she was playing to whichever crowd she she uh, was reaching out for uh, because yeah. you feel that the verdict in the first case was wrong. Uh, that is definitely a travesty of justice, uh, very, very unfair. With regard to the uh, first uh, trial, um, I, I think that uh, the prosecution did a uh, poor job. They did some significant blunders. Um, the uh, glove was perhaps the greatest blunder of all. A, a glove, a, 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 a kid knows that, that a, a glove that is wet and dries is going to shrink. Um, for them to have uh, put the glove on that Johnny Cochran followed so quickly on, uh, it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Um, and um, to put Mark Furman on, uh, Mark Furman wasn't needed in the civil trial, he wasn't needed in the criminal trial, because they, the prosecution, knew it was clear on Furman's record, not a matter of speculation, conjecture, or um, unfair um, <clears throat> comments uh, that had been never proven. It was shown that he had used the N-word. Well, how can you uh, take somebody uh, as your key witness, and he was their key witness, put him on the stand uh, when you have a jury of nine uh, African-Americans, and you're going to have it come out that this guy... Uh, who you're, upon whom your case rests to a very great extent, um, has used the N-word. So, uh, you know, that, that's it. I, uh, not a matter of whether, um, well, whether you believe O.J. was guilty or not, um, in, in the United States, in Canada, you know, you, you have fair trials and you've got to prove your case and you go before a jury. And, uh, they, they blundered badly. Um, so, um, well, those, you know, those are my thoughts. May I add one other Please. thing about uh, how the prosecution blew it? Um, the, uh, the prosecution chose not to call a woman named Jill Shively, who was uh, on the road that night after the murders and got almost run down by, o she was in her car, but she was almost knocked off the road by uh, O.J. Simpson in his Bronco fleeing the scene of the murders. And uh, she sold her story because there were some months between when the murders occurred and when the trial happened. And during that time, she took four grand, I believe it was, from uh, a magazine and a TV um, tabloid show. And Marsha Clark got, oh, well, she, her testimony is tainted. We're not calling her. Well, she's, <laughs> she's an important witness. And that is one of, that's the, the, the kind of thinking that no longer exists. Now, somebody would be called to the stand and they would be, say, and the prosecution would say, and you, you took money for your story, didn't you? Yes, I did. I took $4,000 from this and that. Okay. And, but were you lying? No, I was not lying. And the testimony would be valid. So we lost a very key witness who has never wavered in what she uh, said she saw that night. The other thing is there was a film that O.J. had made, had just made a movie called Frogman, and he played a Navy SEAL assassin, and one of this, and this was a pilot for NBC, and it, one of the, the key scenes has him dressed in black with the same kind of um, hat or head covering that was found uh, later after the murders 
and he sneaks up behind somebody and with a knife he slits the person's throat and all the blood gushes forward and doesn't cover him with blood because he's standing behind the victim. I mean, that is an absolute blueprint for what he did, and they chose not to show that footage to the jury. Maybe it would have made a difference, maybe it wouldn't have, but to exclude that footage, and that film, by the way, has been in police lockup ever since, has never been seen by the public. So two things where I think the, uh, they, besides what Dr. Weck just said, where the prosecution blew it. Folks, www.nightfredshow.com. The book is called Final Exams, True Crime Cases from Cyril Wecht, and it's written also by Donna Coffin. Both, we are blessed tonight, folks. Both are our guests tonight, and we are taking phone calls tonight, folks. If you're out there, you can Skype us at Brent Holland Show, and the little geographic location will come up, Kingston, Canada. So not to be mistaken with Jamaica, although sometimes I wish I was there. Um, let's go to one of the four cases that are in the book, and this one really touched my heart. This has a big Canadian connection, and it's called um, Hell Hath No Fury. And uh, just let me read this for a second, folks. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it after how it changed Canadian law. Could we? Could you just give a brief synopsis of that, Doctor Wett? The is this the Bagby case? Yes, it is. Uh, yes. Well, why don't you let Donna, she's, go ahead, Donna, why don't you get started off, go ahead. Okay, well, this is, uh, first of all, let me just say that in this book, we have four different cases, all of which Dr. Weck worked on to one degree or another in his role as a forensic um, examiner or forensic pathologist, which is the same as medical examiner, and it's somebody who, who cuts open a dead body and figures out what happened, and in the case of... Um, in, in the cases that we write about, they are all deemed homicides uh, and are he covers from when the first when the body is found through any eventual court hearing and Dr. Weck's testimony can send somebody to death row or get a, a, a wrongly convicted person off death row. That's how important the testimony is of a forensic pathologist. So our case, we, our book has, uh, final exams, has four cases, and the fourth case is one from uh, the Pittsburgh area. It was um, a doctor, a young doctor, who's, who basically, this was his first job, uh, 28-year-old Andrew Bagby. His bullet-ridden body was found in a park. Dr. West did the autopsy. It became clear very early on that this was a homicide at the hands of his girlfriend, who was also a physician. And uh, when it looked like she was going to be arrested, she fled to Canada, Newfoundland, and uh, where she uh, was a citizen, and they protected her. And then during the trial motions to try to get her to return to the United States, uh, she announced that she was pregnant. And the people who, the parents of Andrew Bagby only had one child, and now he was dead. And now they had a grandchild who was to be born, 
and they had to make nice with the woman who killed their only son so they would have some chance of having a relationship with their only living kin. So that's that's the story in a nutshell, and um, it's it is absolutely a, a painful story. And the good part is, if you can call it good, is that these grandparents, what they did to fight the system, was extraordinary, and um, and they did prevail. But uh, the story is is I'm not going to give away what happened, but it, it is quite an emotional story. There's never been anything like this. Yeah. Very, very bizarre ending. Um, Please. And back uh, to the point uh, about uh, knowing who had shot him. Uh, this uh, woman physician, his uh, lady friend, uh, the romance apparently being broken up uh, by him, uh, she had driven all the way from uh, Iowa, I believe it was Iowa, mm-hmm. and um, if she had not used um, the tolls, uh, then, you know, just gotten off the major uh, highways, the uh, pay-as-you-go tolls, uh, they they might have gotten around to thinking about her, but uh, who knows, uh, driving back and forth like that, straight through, if she wasn't on duty and uh, she wasn't missed, and, uh, you know, she was at home and nobody could prove otherwise. So uh, very interesting sometimes about how a crime is solved. Right. You know, the forensics uh, are always something that we hit on in our uh, storytelling. And in this case, it's an example of a woman who's so smart she was a physician, but she didn't know about forensics, and she didn't know to turn off your cell phone because the cell phone tracked her movements as she said, oh, I wasn't even there. Well, yes, you were. (laughs) So the case was solved very quickly but because of the problem with canada sorry canada um (laughs) you know justice was not uh rapid there i should explain that folks indeed canada as canada does not have uh the death penalty we haven't had it i think since 1972 uh for better for worse in some cases i think it's for worse when i look down the street at the maximum penitentiary here in Kingston where a lot of the wackos uh, just got awful serial killers and rapists and, and child abusers were housed. Um, perhaps, uh, you know, what is it, 20 cents for a bullet? That's all I'm going to say. Um, we haven't had the, the death penalty since 72. So because of that, we are very hesitant to extradite, if you will, send somebody abroad, say to Saudi Arabia, where they could be beheaded. Um, It works a little bit different with the United States because it's state by state, but Canada looks at all all the various cases, and they try to make a judgment, uh, some kind of judgment based on the case. Uh, if they if they feel that no they may be killed in the end well then they just won't send them so yeah it's a bit of a stickler for sure there it, it you know when you're dealing with the states you're not dealing with Saudi Arabia so we have to bear that in mind too you know and no offense well yeah a little bit of offense to Saudi Arabia where they treat their women <laughs> like chattel uh, it's not Israel let's put it that way folks uh, now I just want to tell you that because as a result of this case. 
there was something that came out that changed Canadian criminal code on October 23, 2009. It was actually called Zachary's Bill, named after the little guy. And the bill is C-464. Essentially, the bill enables the courts to refuse um, anyone bail that's accused of a serious crime in the name of protecting their children. So there's a case, you see, folks, where uh, the law has changed. Now, Dr. Wecht, has that happened a lot with you where you've investigated something and say police procedures have changed, procedures in how forensics are carried out has changed? Well, uh, yes. Uh, um, you've already pointed out uh, this thing with regard to capital punishment. Um, insofar as uh, countries are concerned, it doesn't exist down here in the States, to my knowledge. Uh, somebody can be extradited from one state to another, even though the state in which they have been found uh, does not have a death penalty, and the state to which they would be returned does have a death penalty. Um, with regard to forensics, uh, there are things that have changed, uh, certainly. The most dramatic change, insofar as um, cold cases are concerned, insofar as reversals, insofar as uh, proving um, um, that uh, a, a, a case has occurred. Um, I would say that DNA certainly has been the most revolutionary thing, and no question about it. Um, first uh, used in England about 1984, and then um, picked up by the FBI around 88, 89, and uh, applied since that time, cellular DNA. Um, otherwise, um, I would say the changes and things that have occurred are really due largely uh, to um, um, a greater um, focusing on uh, sophisticated forensic scientific techniques, uh, most of which uh, did exist before with some technological advancements. But because of the uh, O.J. Simpson case, the John Benet Ramsey case, and uh, frankly, uh, probably because of the, the fictional programs also, uh, there has been uh, increased application, utilization of forensic scientific te te techniques that were extant, but which were not handled in the same diligent fashion that we find them being applied today. Fair enough. Folks, the book is called... Final Exams, True Crime Cases from Sura Wecht and also co-authored by Donna Kaufman. Easy way to get it is always www.nightfrightshow.com. Now, I'm just wondering here, as I'm going over some of the questions and notes I have for you, one thing comes to mind that I hadn't written down, and that is very often, um, Donna, you go to Dr. Wecht for a quote or for some information. Has it ever happened that he has come to you? Huh. Um, well, I, I don't know what expertise I have that, uh, I, I mean, you know, he will come to me and say, here's a case we really ought to hit on in our next book. And, and I listen very carefully. Let me just back up and say, Dr. West does, three, on an average day, three autopsies a day. Oh, good God. That's 18,000. No, 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 you know, you're, no you're, you're a little high, you're a little high. Uh, no, 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 you're high, you're high, you're high. Uh, what, is my I, red I, eyes I, that are giving me away? <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I do, I do enough, over 400 a year, um, of my, of my own, um, not counting others that I review. But, but anyway, that's, that's a big load. But go ahead, well, Don, I'm sorry. It's 18,000, 
plus autopsies that he has personally done. And he has consulted on another 38,000 plus cases. So I have plenty of cases to choose from. And so he'll say to me, oh, here's a really good one we should include in a future book. And uh, there are a number of variables I look at. Each book, and this is our third, uh, has to do with uh, sometimes he, he works on the prosecution, sometimes he works on the defense. So I want both of those represented in a book. And uh, I want different causes of ma and manners of death, and, and Dr. Wett can describe the difference of those two words, which are very important. And, um, and I'd like to have a different parts of the country or the world represented. And sometimes we'll write about famous people. We've written about Michael Jackson, Anna Nicole Smith, um, in books, uh, Casey Anthony, Drew Peterson, uh, Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. So, so, so sometimes these are cases that people uh, know a great deal about, but we go in and find things that they don't know about. And then sometimes they're just like the Bagby case, just emotionally uh, gut-wrenching, and uh, it just needs to be included in there because there are heroes that we find uh, in the storytelling that we want to give a little pat on the back to. So that's how he consults me uh, and encourages me to choose the stories. And, and uh, I'm the one who has to be with each chapter for several months as I'm gathering material. So it has to be something that rises to that level where we have photos and we have um, background family uh, family involvement. And the, and the family involvement is so critical because these people very often don't know the full stories of what happened. And we're really happy uh, to be able to translate that to them. So, so sometimes, uh, in the case of the, uh, one of the chapters in the book is about Jessica Lenser, which we can talk about later, but that's one where I brought Dr. Wecht into it. Uh, but, you know, basically, these are his stories, and his, he, he's worked on these cases from, you know, when the body is recovered to through whatever court action. And, and we also find that even a court verdict is not necessarily the end of the story. Uh, one of our cases is having a new trial. So, um, you know, it, it, these things have a life of their own, and, and then there are civil trials that come out of them, and um, someone is paroled, and, you know, it just, they never stop. You know? They just never stop. And so... Uh, and, and neither does the science behind them. Just like Dr. West was talking about uh, DNA um, being uh, purified and being uh, used in court cases, that whole discipline has changed. And one of our cases is very, uh, Im makes that important uh, point. And, um, you know, so and, and that's true. I mean, if you're looking at uh, fingerprints, there even something as prosaic as fingerprint evidence uh, is being questioned by uh, prominent and competent defense attorneys. And so laboratories have to really know what they're doing and really have high standards 
uh, if they're expected to have their representatives put somebody to death or on trial. Um, you so, must be yeah, clairvoyant. Yeah, living, breathing. You've got to be clairvoyant, Donna, because I was just about to bring up Jessica Lunsford's story. Now, what is disturbing to me, folks, with all of these stories is when it comes down to kids, and I think of John Bennett Ramsey, of course. Dr. Wett, when you look at what is happening to children today, is it on the increase? Is there some kind of repeating pattern in the psyche that has human beings go after kids like never before? I don't know um, um, whether there has been a forensic epidemiological study done um, and whether one could be done uh, in, in terms of determining uh, whether or not there is something uh, cyclical, whether or not something uh, in recent years uh, because of the depersonalization of society, um, the greater mobility of society, um, etc., whether there are more crimes against children than there were before. And the reason that that cannot be done, in my opinion, is because um, going back, and I'm not talking about the ancient past, just go back uh, several decades, um, uh, let alone a, a century or two. There was no television. There were no people like uh, like you, or Brent, um, with these kinds of programs. There were no uh, real uh, investigative uh, reporters. And, uh, of course, uh, society was nowhere near as advanced in many other ways. Uh, what went on then with children was a different matter. Also, things were looked at differently. I don't want to digress, but look at the situation now involving the uh, Minnesota Viking ball player uh, who uh, whipped his uh, kid. Uh, I can tell you, I can tell you where I went to school in my neighborhood. Uh, kids were whipped with a paddle. Strong. There was uh, one particular teacher, was the gym teacher, and when you were bad, you were sent to him, and you lined up, you bent over, uh, you held your crotch, and he whacked you hard. And I knew uh, where I grew up, uh, mostly kids uh, of uh, first-generation Americans, immigrants, uh, some of the ethnic families uh, from different parts of Europe, they whacked their kids. So, so anyway, um, coming back to this, but let, let me let me let me comment. Um, as a parent, as a grandparent, as a forensic apologist, as uh, somebody who's been involved in government and society in, in many other ways, uh, and that is that it is absolutely amazing that people commit these acts of sheer savagery, of barbarity directed uh, toward uh, children. Um, it, it's, it's, it's inexplicable. Um, how do you... Uh, uh, how, do, how do you try to understand uh, these things um, from a moral, uh, ethical standpoint in countries like yours and, and ours uh, and so on? And, of course, what do we know? Uh, I'm not talking about the Islamic terrorism. We do know about that um, and the killing of innocent children because they're Christians or Kurds or Yazidis. Uh, we do know that. But uh, what's going on in Africa, in many countries, uh, of Asia and so on? Um, to our children. So I, I think that, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a problem. It's going to remain uh, so, um, and this is not uh, to be indifferent uh, to uh, attacks on other people, too. Uh, worse for children um, in our eyes, in our minds, uh, uh, in, my, uh, in my thoughts as I do an autopsy, but that doesn't mean that the killing of an innocent person, uh, even an adult <laughs> uh, male, uh, 
uh, you know, he's, he was a human being too. Uh, well, that's that's the nature of uh, the business, and uh, I, you know, no, you you can get all the sociologists, psychologists, psychiatrists, theologians, moralists, ethicists, um, political observers, and news media people in the world. Bring them together, and you could have discussions ad infinitum. You're not going to come up with an answer. Uh, human beings are beasts; we're animals, and uh, in fact, we do some things that you don't find in the animal world. Right. That's for sure. That's pretty scary. How do you deal with that on, when you're writing a book like this? I mean, you know, I just finished my own book on the Kennedy assassination, and oh, oh. and well, I was oh, I guess you guys don't know. I was very blessed. I I got to interview Ted Sorensen twice, and spend oh. an afternoon with him in his Manhattan apartment just prior to him dying. And mm-hmm. uh, God must have tapped me on the shoulder on the way to his place and said, "Go back, get your video camera," because it turned out to be his last interview. Wow. Oh, wow. We'll have to talk about that another another time, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he virtually changed my life. But I guess what I'm going to say is when I was engulfed in writing the book, um, you know, when it came to the deaths, uh, the death of the president, uh, you know, it's very upsetting to look at these pictures. Now, you look at these pictures every day, you're engulfed in it, and as well as you, Donna, because you're writing the book. So, of course, when you're doing your research, you also have to, indulge in this type of uh, barbarity that's the only word i can you know how do you how do you stay sane donna well from from my well donna you good uh, you know from my standpoint uh, uh, people often ask i just want to say that you know i see what you see and i uh, smell what you smell and uh, and uh, so uh, you know you don't become insensitive there's no way that you become immunized. There's no way that you develop a tolerance or a habituation uh, to these things. But you deal with it. It's, uh, and you, um, in, in some ways, uh, you, you comfort yourself by knowing uh, what you're doing uh, is going to contribute, uh, really, to civil and criminal justice. It's going to assuage anxiety, allay apprehension. It's going to uh, hopefully lead to the punishment of the guilty, the exoneration of the innocent. Etc. And I'm not just waving flags here. I mean, these are the things collectively. Uh, when you think of what forensic pathologists and other forensic scientists do uh, every day, uh, somewhere uh, in Canada, United States, etc., uh, put it all together and just think uh, what what the justice system would be without that kind of scientific input. Donna. How do you stay safe? Well, our books, uh, as I said, we, this is our third book, and every one of them has a case about a child mm-hmm. who was sexually abused and, uh, and a homicide victim. And a, a lot of true crime authors just won't touch that. And I have kind of embraced that as a necessary evil in each of our books because I want people to be aware of how these crimes occur how society can protect itself against these white um, sharks of the of the streets. Have you, you know, got some suggestions? Sharks how parents that are could, after our children. Have you got some suggestions how parents could protect their kids that they might not well, be Well, a lot of, a lot of the cases, it's just uh, you know you do everything you can, and it still happens. Uh, in this case of Jessica Lunsford. And in our first book, uh, A Question of Murder, uh, which had to do with Danielle Van Dam, 
predators came into the home while the family and the dog was there, took the child out, uh, and got in and out of the house with no difficulty. Uh, and they, uh, in one case, it was a stranger, and one was someone who was a neighbor. So, um, how is that possible? You can't protect against that, mm-hmm. but you can find out how parents become advocates uh, when they are are thrust into this horrible, horrible world of becoming a um, a victim. Uh, and how they get through it. A lot of times families break up and and point fingers at each other and when there's another perpetrator who did this. Um, so this is something that uh, I'm just committed to telling uh, these stories because I, I get so angry. Uh, our second book actually also has a, a, a case like this where a child was just playing and uh, just kidnapped off the street and, and raped and killed. Um, these these are things that I see all the time. I mean, maybe once a day I see a new case of this nature. And it, it, it is repelling. And you can look at this and, and wonder if there's a connection to the Internet and pornography and mm-hmm. child porn. And I think a good argument could be made about that. Um, the as Dr. Weck said, the desensitization of society is just, uh, you know, a whole new spectrum of crimes that are occurring. And and it, it creates a whole new spectrum of laws and trying to legislate uh, what, what we can do to ensure better safety. And, and so there are a lot of just different uh, elements that come from this. But it, at the... At the core of it, there's a dead child, and that's just a horrible thing. Um, you know, it's just it's just a terrible thing that I think we're seeing more of, um, or at least there there are more reports of of this now. Doctor Wecht, have you ever done any? I was going to say research. Have you ever investigated a child committing murder on another child? Yes, I've had some cases over the years, uh, not many, um, because uh, Brent, those cases are usually then handled, uh, obviously, uh, by the court system. Uh, I, I'm not sure about Canada, but probably it's the same as the United States. Uh, you may even be uh, more uh, humanitarian and benevolent uh, than, than we are in that regard. So when a child of tender years, and that varies, uh, it's not as rigid as it used to be under English common law uh, majority. Now uh, you can convict a child of murder. I've seen a child, uh, 12, 13 children uh, convicted of, of murder. But usually, um, you know, if, if they're under 13, 14, uh, things are, are worked out with the court. And uh, I think below 12, I don't know of any child that where it's really been pursued. This doesn't mean that they won't be charged with murder. It doesn't mean that they won't be sentenced to juvenile court, but they'll go to juvenile court, and uh, there's not going to be a jury trial sending them to prison for the rest of their life. As a matter of fact, there's a recent U.S. Supreme Court decision which holds that a, uh, a has to do with that, whether a child uh, can be sentenced, um, wherein the sentence 
uh, lingers on uh, into adulthood and uh, continues in that that decision and essentially said no. So um, you you don't really I mean but but have I seen autopsies in which a child has killed another child? Yes, um, sometimes uh, with guns in our uh, great United States of America where everybody is permitted to own a gun. Uh, so uh, guns are on the house. A kid gets a gun and they're playing with it, and the gun goes off. Uh, other cases, uh, kids are doing things that are mischievous, uh, sometimes even uh, malicious, malevolent, uh, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, I remember a great movie from a long time ago, I bet you don't remember it, called Bad Seed, in which there was this uh, beautiful yep. little blonde girl that went on, uh, <laughs> that was a, a murderess uh, from early on. So, um, you, you, you do have kids, and that do these things, and you know, then you get into an argument uh, or a discussion, I shouldn't say, uh, an argument, um, uh, and more of a discussion uh, with uh, a pediatric adolescent uh, psychiatrist. Is a child of uh, tender years, eight, nine, ten, eleven, is such a child capable of premeditated, deliberate murder, which would be first-degree murder, and, and, and I believe also in yours. And that's a question for another day. Uh, suffice it to say that. Uh, there are some cases in which a, a kid intends to harm. Now, do they understand the meaning of death? Do they understand the irreversibility of death? Uh, you know, so you go on and on. But yes, uh, children do kill uh, children, and I've had uh, such cases over the years, but uh, not that often. More often, it's, of course, uh, adults in one capacity or another. And, and let me say, turn that coin over, too. There are cases in which people are falsely accused. There are cases from a pathological standpoint where uh, charges are made. Uh, one of the big things in this country is shaken baby syndrome, which your country, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the Canadian Medical Society have, uh, have labeled as uh, junk science, and I agree with the Canadians uh, that there's no such a pure thing is shaken. They've changed the type of language in the United States now. It's called shaken baby syndrome with impact or abuse of head trauma. So I and some of my colleagues who held out on the shaken baby syndrome decades ago and past years have prevailed. Um, but um, the, the there are cases which are overdiagnosed, and especially again, I'm talking about the United States. I can't speak for Canada, where the pediatricians now. Um, are are dealing uh, with I think a collective sense of guilt passed on from previous uh, generations of pediatricians. In some cases, their own mentors, their teachers, the people that they highly respected, under whom they trained. Um, because look at the battered child syndrome. Battered child syndrome was not recognized in until the early 1960s. Well, just think, Brent. Gee, my God, we're talking about society. There were no battered children until the early 1960s. Do you realize what that means? Do you realize, think about the cases that were missed until this entity was diagnosed by Kemp and others uh, just, uh, what, 50-some years ago? So now you bring a kid into the emergency room in the United States of America with a fracture or an injury or something, and you and I can tell you from my own, my own children, One's a judge, one's a neurosurgeon, uh, one's an OB gynae, and one's an academician, uh, forensic science uh, program director. I can tell you, uh, uh, from them, you walk into the emergency room with a kid, and and that kid has an injury. You 
are guilty. You have caused directly, indirectly, that injury uh, until proven otherwise in their eyes. So I just wanted to turn that coin over, too. Um, you got to be careful uh, in, in these uh, cases, and I've had a lot of fascinating cases like that. You know, you've both been in depth, up front, up face-to-face -face with evil, I would say. Don, I'm going to start with you, but I'd like to get Dr. Wexan's answer after. What is the scariest thing that you've come across? Wow. Um, well, I, let me just add to what Dr. Weck was getting at with the child cases. Um, and you've probably, you and your audience have probably heard of the Slender Man phenomenon. Yes. Yes. What's and going on? That That's what I was trying a, to get at. Yeah. Young adult uh, series of books. And um, I, I guess they're sort of novel, um, uh, you know, photo novels or draw, picture novels mm -hmm. uh, about a character who encourages young girls to kill people. And uh, there were two, there were three 12-year-old girls, maybe one was 13, and uh, in, in the States, and uh, two of them plotted to kill the third one and stabbed her 19 times because Slender Man uh, would have approved of them doing this. The fictional character would have approved of them killing their best friend, but the girl didn't die. She's, uh, she actually recovered. She's back in school, and she's, uh, now the question is, is there going to be a trial? And very, I get very frustrated because sometimes the doors close around a child perpetrator and we don't get to see how this would play out in a court. Uh, in the case of the two perpetrators here, they were both found um, mentally uh, defective and unable to, to be tried. <clears throat> so they will be dealt with in the, in the mental health system, which may be exactly where they should be. One of the, the one of the sets of parents uh, and the main perpetrator are very goth kinds of people and I know goth and I you know I come from the punk rock music world so you know I'm not shocked by anything but these parents really raised their daughter as if they were in the Adams family and uh, you you see them in court showing up with multiple piercings in their faces and tattoos on their you know, everywhere, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but did that make for a child who who would have trouble uh, telling the difference between fiction and non and, and uh, having a sense of reality? This girl really believed that this evil character, Slender Man, was telling her um, to do this, and of course, you know, the, the, it sort of reminds you of Son of Sam, where David mm -hmm. Berkowitz, mm -hmm. uh, a killer in New York, said that a dog uh, of a neighbor, Sam, was telling him to kill people. So, you know, the mental illness quotient, it, we're seeing killer, child killers being diagnosed as schizophrenic at age 12, usually that is something that diagnosis would come much later uh, around uh, you know early adulthood or late teens at, at least um, but now we're seeing that level change and it's becoming much much earlier 
And um, and then there was a second Slender Man attempted murder where a girl was uh, certain that her that Slender Man wanted her to kill her mother and burn down their house. And uh, you know that one is yet to be dealt with. But you know this is this is a, a strange world we're living in now where kids don't seem to be able to tell the difference or they don't care. The callousness of these two girls was just off the map uh, of, you know, they they absolutely confessed and, and said they wanted to see her die, and this is their best friend, you know, so... There's no empathy. Uh, scary. That's a scary thing to me. That terrifies me as well, and that's what I was getting at. Dr. Wecht, how about yourself, sir? Well, you mean in terms of, um, of what has been the greatest form of evil or uh, what scares you to death the most scares uh, scares me well uh, what scares me standing back and looking at the broader picture and not just one case and not just today or or yesterday but looking at the uh, broader picture we're in the year 2014 think of what has happened technologically think of what we're doing uh, people landing on the moon uh, think of uh, uh, everything uh, with uh, uh, the equipment, you can see what everybody's doing and know where everybody is. And so you have all of these things uh, happening, and at the same time, look at what is going on in the world. Again, I don't want to digress, uh, but um, there, there is there's something wrong. I, I just wish, uh, uh, I, I know I can't live forever and I don't want to live forever. I wish there was some way that at least once every decade, um, or or two that after I die, um, I would be able just to have a a, a, a brief day, uh, uh, an hour uh, to read the uh, uh, top newspapers uh, just to see what's going on in the world. It's it's very disturbing uh, when you think of what's happening um, around the world. Uh, and I, I don't want to digress, but but you know where 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 is our sense? of human decency where civilization going we have billions of dollars being spent every week in in warfare uh, somewhere uh, or other around the world collectively and yet uh, in in africa with the ebola vaccine it would take just a fraction of that amount of money to be able to control that by establishing medical centers and getting inappropriate medical personnel uh, so i'm just giving that as, a, as an example um of of, of our overall society we we are not moving along in parallel um, symmetrical fashion with what is happening technologically now that leads then to a question uh, does technology does all of, of this business including by the way uh, television and all of these fictional stories and everything that is presented uh, uh, and so on and the kinds of things you know Donna talking about the uh, slender man and so on well there was no way in the world um, going back uh, some decades or so uh, for a slender man to have been around there was no television uh, you didn't have the means of disseminating that kind of information uh, so um, so easily with such great facility did you so um, it's, it's fascinating to think of, of what has technology done to contribute to uh, the diminution um, of um, the advancement 
the of, of, of society, the, the the worsening of civilization, uh, ironically, paradoxically, have the advancements of a technological nature contributed to the demoralization and the dehumanization of society. There's something to think about. We're coming up to break right now, folks, but I just want to tell you, we're speaking with Dr. Cyril Wett, and fans of the show will know who he is for sure, and his co-author, Donna Kaufman. The book is called Final Exams, Two Crime, True... I'll get this together yet, folks. Final Exams, True Crime Cases from Cyril Wett with co-author Donna Kaufman, www.nightfrightshow.com. Stick with us. The music's going to start any second now for six Brent, minutes. Uh, I'll be, Brent, may I say goodbye, goodnight to you and your listeners? I have a commitment uh, with some attorneys uh, on a call, uh, but Donna is going to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank Bye, you. Dr. Wett. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be back in a few moments with Donna Coffin. Stick with us, folks. See you in six minutes. Stick around there, my friend Donna. See you in six minutes. Right, quick shout out to Kelly Loeb. Thank you, Kelly, for all that you do, keeping the website up and doing all the volunteer work you do for this show. Thank you so much, my friend. Folks, get the coffee going, get the tea going. Get a beverage of your choice. Go and settle back. Relax. There's plenty of time left. We have Donna Kaufman with us tonight. She's co-written a book with Dr. Cyril Wecht, who was here in the first hour. But we're going to continue with Donna. Dr. Cyril Wecht had to leave. The book is called Final Exams, True Crime Cases from Cyril Wecht with co-author Donna Kaufman. www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on the book cover there. That'll take you right to a spot where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home. And um, it's time I have to plug my book again. Otherwise, my publisher charges me for that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> she says, Brent, plug your book. So here we go. I've written a book. It's called uh, The JFK Assassination from the Oval Office to DV Plaza. It's got a whole list of first-person witnesses that were involved uh, with the assassination including Ted Sorensen, who was JFK's speechwriter and closest aide. He was uh, the person John F. Kennedy tasked to write that letter to get Khrushchev to back down and take the missiles out of Cuba. He also confirmed to me, and you'll see this in the book, that it was a conspiracy. And that's uh, something that has never come from the inner circle of the Kennedy team before. So uh, you can get that at www.nightfrightshow.com as well. Uh, First-person witnesses include Abraham Bolden, the first African-American Secret Service agent. Um, Beverly Oliver, who was the babushka lady. She knew Jack Ruby, and she was in Dealey Plaza that day. James Tague, who was the third person wounded in Dealey Plaza. And uh, also Dr. Robert McClellan, who worked on JFK, and he tells the true story of the behind the scenes trying to resuscitate the stricken president and how Jackie reacted in the uh, in trauma room one. So that again is available for you to get. Also, there are two companion DVD documentaries that you can order online. One is on Dr. Um, Robert McClelland. It's called First Person Witnesses: Beverly Oliver and James Take. And the other is uh, a full documentary, feature film documentary, on Abraham Bolden, the first African-American Secret Service agent handpicked by JFK. www.nightfrightshow.com. Let's go back to Donna right away. Donna, what an explosive and incredible man. 
Dr. Wiggins. Now, how did you guys... Now, I've got to watch my language here because I was in Starbucks the other day and I made a big error, folks. I had my, uh, my laptop with me and I had it on the table and I said to the young lady behind the counter, I said, here, let me move my junk down to the other end to give you room. Well, she looked at me like I was from Mars. Now, junk apparently has a whole new meaning now. <laughs> Who knew? They should put warning signs up for old farts like me. Showing your junk in Starbucks. That could get you uh, some serious uh, attention or a movie contract here in Los Angeles. <laughs> but the point I was going to make, there's another word that has changed meaning, folks. And that word is hooking up. It's two words, actually. I asked another young lady at Starbucks if she was hooking up with her boyfriend that night to go see a movie. <laughs> and again, she looked at me like I was from Mars. So I'm quite well known now at Starbucks as the old fart that doesn't know the language. Hooking up has a whole new connotation. How did you guys come to meet each other? <laughs> well, we, we don't hook up. He's happily married and... Uh... And there, uh, there's a whole country between us. Um, we, uh, well, after I was working on the OJ case, uh, I went into other true crime cases, including Jean Benet Ramsey, and uh, I would find that I was most interested in the forensic and behavioral aspects of these cases, and and the um, perpetrators, the suspects, the victims, the players around each of them um, and so I would when I was doing articles uh, for various newspapers and magazines I would want to have uh, some science behind the theories I was promote I, I, the theories that I I would promote so I would call Dr. West for his opinions and he was excellent about breaking down the medicalese and the uh, legalese into bite-sized pieces that even, you know, I could understand and readers could understand. And I thought, well, this is why this guy is so effective in speaking to juries, because he really puts it into plain vernacular. So that's how uh, we, we started, uh, I would call him for his opinion on various cases. And I've, I've worked on, oh, I don't know, hundreds or thousands of different cases. I don't even count them anymore because they're constantly coming and going. And uh, many, many times I've called uh, upon Dr. Wecht, and then at a certain point I started going to um, conferences. Uh, This is even before the TV show CSI or Criminal Minds uh, were on on the air, and I would go to these forensics conventions where I was like a kid in the candy store, <laughs> really learning what other people go to school for, you know, advanced degrees for. I was just embracing and, and learning all these various disciplines. And at the time, like, because there wasn't a lot of uh, pats on the back for the scientists doing these kinds of cases, I was um, really welcomed into the fold, and I began to become familiar there, and I would also use the various uh, uh, contacts I made to flesh out my stories, and um, 
and we would talk other cases, and it was just a tremendous, uh, tremendously rich environment of science and law and all the disciplines from, you know, fibers to DNA to fingerprints to question documents to uh, blood to ballistics, all these things were, and toxicology, all these were new ideas to me, and I was learning from the very best people, not only in America, but from around the world who would go to these forensics seminars and and talk about, you know, open cases and cases that they couldn't solve and that they needed help from their colleagues about. So I, I really uh, embraced the whole thing, and and I was very lucky to be exposed to all of this uh, at a time when, uh, you know, when it was not getting a lot of attention. So uh, now that there's CSI and uh, Criminal Minds and, and Rizzoli and Isles and all of these Bones. TV shows yeah. on, mm-hmm. um, and NCIS, and they're all, you know, even to a certain degree, Law and Order, and they're all prom- doing um, spawning uh, sequels of their primary shows, SVU for Law and Order, and now NCIS from New Orleans, and all of these stories have the autopsy and the science as the Rosetta Stone. It's where you start telling the story. It's where you assess a crime. So all, all of that is new, and it sort of informs a jury as well, although we constantly have situations where a jury just doesn't understand. What do you mean it takes months to get DNA results? I, I thought it was like the time that, you know, there's a commercial, and you, have, you come back, and you've got the DNA results. So that's... <laughs> Kind of the CSI effect in in the real world is, um, you know, not realistic. But uh, but I think it's better to have informed people and you just describe to them at the beginning. This is this is real. This is not fiction. And the reason I write nonfiction is because uh, the the twisted stories that we tell in our books. <laughs> No Hollywood writer, of which I am one, I'm in the Screenwriters Guild, uh, could concoct these kinds of uh, insane plot twists as you see in real life. Yes. So it just constantly keeps me in a perpetual state of uh, amazement and amusement. That's how deep human beings can go and the depravity they're capable of. Did you cover the Michael Jackson uh, death? Yes, that is in our second book, and it's Go ahead, called, plug that um, the title, too. We'll talk about that. Yeah, that is from Crime Scene to Courtroom, and it has, that's the Casey Anthony story is in there, and Drew Peterson, and a couple of, I think there are several cases in, in there. But Michael Jackson, certainly, I live in Los Angeles. I saw what that did mm-hmm. to our community. Uh, there was a time from when he was, uh, our, our book, talks about what led up to his death and basically he was a drug addict from 1984 forward and his whole life in the last few years was dedicated to trying to find more drugs at a time when the United States system 
was limiting what doctors were able to prescribe to patients. And smart, wealthy people like Anna Nicole Smith and Michael Jackson knew that they would have to find vulnerable doctors to keep the drugs coming, and they would compromise the doctors and why these doctors agreed to it is a whole other thing. But, you know, they would get their prescriptions under false names. And uh, so we spend a lot of time uh, talking about that. And with Michael Jackson, of course, there's, there was the, the trial of his doctor who ended up going to jail for a short time for um, manslaughter, um, negligence, and... Uh, you know, so that that's a very interesting case, and and there there was a point where they couldn't figure out where to bury him, so he was on ice, and that happened with Anna Nicole too. Uh, there was a uh, there were weeks, if not months, uh, in between the death to when they were finally buried, uh, when a secure place was found for their for their uh, bodies to be interred. Um, and during that time, other tests were done on the uh, rapidly disintegrating body because bodies do decompose even when they are in um, cold climes and uh, the more drawers, um, there's they're still decomposition. So, you know, we, we go into all of that. So you have uh, his background... Um, was this doctor fairly uh, charged with this crime and, that he was found guilty of? And why weren't other doctors in Michael Jackson's purview also charged? Our first book is called A Question of Murder, and that has the Anna Nicole Smith story as well as her son. Dr. Weck got into it because um, the son died in the Bahamas shortly after Anne Nicole, like three days after she gave birth to her daughter. Could I just and, ask you a couple uh, more questions about Michael? In 1984, he did the Victory Tour. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, as a lighting designer, I have a lighting design degree. And I worked on that tour. And he seemed normal. Actually, the whole Jackson family treated the crew like royalty. I've never been treated wow. like that before. And um, I'm just wondering if, you know, when he burnt his hair and his face and that, if that's what led to the downward spiral and the Absolutely attraction. Absolutely was. That was it the can be, It can be all blamed upon that, the Pepsi commercial. Yeah. And you can see it on the Internet where his hair catches fire because he's got product in his hair. Sure. And he doesn't realize for a while that his hair is burning and it burns really the whole top of his scalp. Uh, if you can imagine putting a yarmulke on your head and having that amount of hair and scalp burned mm. off and the absolute horrendous pain that that would produce, and it got him dependent on, on pills. In, in the case of both um, Anna Nicole and yeah. Michael, they, they, they would be the last people who would think of themselves as drug addicts. Uh, but prescription medications are the main cause of drug deaths and Dr. Weck would would tell you if he were here that half of the patients that come across his morgue table these days are combined drug toxicity deaths. It's not 
you know, the junkies with the needles in their arms. It's the people with multiple pills in their systems and who are self-medicating and think, well, okay, I'm, I'll have a little alcohol or I'll have, I can't sleep, let me take more pain, let me take painkillers on top of sleeping pills on top, top of antidepressants on top of cold medication and, you know, all these things are combined. And, um, you know, people die. Because Robin Williams, you know, I think Michael started suffering from depression after that as well. I think that was a large part of yes. his insomnia, big time. Yeah, I mean, but you saw him at a point when he was, oh, and I, I wish I had that exposure. I mean, I saw him in concerts and, and um, uh, you know, I worked in the TV business, so I mm -hmm. saw him a little there. But my gosh, when he was at his greatest, there was nobody who was close to him. Uh, the talent, the sheer amazing talent of this young man, it was just phenomenal. Uh, phenomenal. It was just unbelievable. Now, I'm going to let a secret out of the bag that's probably not a secret, but at the time, Brooke Shields was visiting with him. And I'll use that word, visiting in quotation marks. Yeah. So, I, you know, the pedophilia and all that stuff, I don't know if that's true or not, folks. I have no clue on that. That was long after, and I just don't know. Well, they never had a sexual relationship. You must know that. Uh, the, you know, she was, she, she was a virgin until she was at Princeton, and, and it was really a, a concoction of her mother, um, Terry, who was, I was a friend of at, uh, at a certain point um, in those even earlier years and um, you know it was good PR for both of them to have this kind of um, red carpet connection but it was it was very chaste and um, yeah <laughs> yeah it was missed it was missed um, John Bennett Burnett, Joan Bennett Brand the other young girl, when you covered her. John Benet Ramsey? Ramsey? Yes, thank you. Dr. Wecht wrote a book about that with somebody else um, before we started working on it together. Um, and his book is called Who Killed John Benet Ramsey? And it still is, is an absolute must-read for anyone interested in this case. And um, But as a reporter, I probably have written more um, articles than any other single person on, on that case, well, maybe there are a couple others who have the same kind of uh, connection to the case as I do. Um, but, um, you know, we will both state without a doubt that this is an inside job. We don't know who did it, um, but if you read his book, he goes through the autopsy and interprets what this means and unfortunately it never did go to trial um, because the two adults who were in the house um, never turned on each other which is usually what breaks the case open so it, it really is uh, a strange set of circumstances never to be repeated one hopes but um, uh, definitely an interesting concoction that has, I don't know, I think of Jean Benet a lot. 
she would be 24 years old now and she would be uh, in she would be doing what she wanted to be perhaps a veterinarian already maybe she would be in the beauty pageant world um, or through it already maybe she would have been uh, uh, a teacher or a violinist she had so many interests as a young girl six years old when she died she was a very interesting little girl and uh, part of that was her mom pushing her into lessons and and uh, the life that she lived as um, a baby beauty pageant winner extreme um, costumes and but that was her mother's uh, life as well and all of the costumes that we've seen of Jean Benet were based on costumes that Patsy, the mother, wore in various pageants as she was coming up. And she uh, was Miss West Virginia at a time and a runner-up for Miss America. Her sister was also Miss West Virginia. So they they had pageants in their blood. And um, that that is an interesting world. I mean, that, that whole idea of baby beauty pageants was an eye-opener to a lot of people who never knew that world existed but it not only exists and existed then uh, in 1996 when she died but um, it's probably become even more lucrative now we do to our children folks the book is called final exams true crime cases from dr. Cyril Wecht with co-author Donna Kaufman and we've got Donna for another oh geez we still got a lot of time left folks if you're just joining us she's all the way from Los Angeles California and um, we're just talking about the book in different cases that they've covered. Another book that they've written together, Crime Scene to Courtroom. And both of those books will be linked on www.nightfrightshow.com website. And A Question of Murder as well, which was our first book. And that's a Question of Murder. That will be there as well, folks, so you can get all three books with the click of a button. and take you right to Thank a place you. we can order them. No, wor no worries question of murder. Now, you had also mentioned that you looked at, you were thinking about bringing out a new book about the Kennedy assassination with Dr. Wett. Yes, we're uh, deep into it. Um, Can you give us a little we, bit of uh, a hint? Yes, a of course. Of Dr. Wett uh, has had a 50-year involvement in the case. Yes, yes. And uh, he, like all of us of a certain age, he, he was uh, consulted it was well, when the when the murder happened. He was a young pathologist and um, was just shocked. And for a period of time, there was no reason to, not to believe everything that the government was saying. I mean, you know, they caught this this guy Lee Harvey Oswald, and they arrested him. And then what do you know? He was killed as a child. When I was growing up, I saw him, I saw Lee Harvey Oswald shot to death on my television. It was the first snuff film of, of my life, you know. I mean, I think all of us grew up that week, um, not only from the assassination, but from seeing the perpetrator killed. And what a strange, strange experience that was. Uh, and in fact, in America, there was such a pall over our our lives and our world and our existence 
that it took the Beatles appearing on uh, Ed Sullivan in 1964 to sort of shock the world back into smiling again. So, uh, you know, it was, it was heady <laughs> times back then. Anyway, Dr. Weck didn't suspect that there was anything amiss with what he was hearing about the case until the Warren Commission report came out, which was several months after the assassination. And then the full... September 24th, by the way, folks, is going to be the 50th uh, anniversary of that. Right, and And so our book, I don't know if our book will be, uh, when it will be out, because I'm not really adhering to any uh, firm uh, release date, but it will be like our current book, Final Exams, released on planetandrule.com, and uh, it will be called 50 Years of Lies, because Dr. Wett has 50 years of monitoring, and, you know, he's one of the prime voices that that the media goes to when they want an alternative view to uh, what the people who defend the one shooter have to say. And if you defend the one shooter, then you have to subscribe to the single bullet theory, which um, says a one bullet went through in and out of JFK and in and out of Governor Connolly, who was also shot in the same car, and did all this damage, and then ended up on a um, on a uh, gurney a gurney in Parkland Hospital. Um, that just didn't happen. There's no way that you can look at the science behind the evidence and say that the story that the government is telling you is accurate. It's just lunacy. And if that is lunacy, if they're lying about that, then they're, they're lying that there was a second shooter. So that case is one that's very important to us and I think uh, important to Americans and people around the world. And I, I'm, I can't wait until we can come back and discuss it. Uh, and I look forward to reading your book as well. Thank you very that's much. That's great, uh, wonderful interviews you got there. So. Um, Yes, as somebody who spends a great deal of every day still on Dealey Plaza or or in, in involved in this case, I, I'm just imbued with the assassination and the unfairness of it all. And, yeah. and you have to wonder what would have happened to the world, really, uh, if that didn't happen. And also, five years later, uh, Robert Kennedy's assassination. I wasn't living in Los Angeles, but I saw it on t- TV. I saw the aftermath on TV, and uh, I was a young kid then, and I think, you know, my gosh, I, I had campaigned for him, uh, you know, passing out flyers and stuff. And the lunacy of that case is you have a guy, uh, Sirhan B. Sirhan, who's been in jail ever since his trial, uh, and has um, has never been allowed parole. He did have a gun that day. He did shoot his gun. There were five other people shot, and none of them mortally. But uh, the shot that killed the senator who was running for president, Robert Kennedy, came from two inches behind his right ear, and Sirhan was never closer than a foot and a half to Kennedy's front. 
So how did he do that? Well, he didn't do that. Obviously, there's a second shooter who has gone unpunished. And uh, this is this is a case where really somebody could still be put on trial, whereas in the JFK case, no chance. But in, in the Robert Kennedy case, that is really still a viable open case. And you ask, how did he get... How did he get convicted if that happened? Easy. They didn't present the autopsy at his trial. They did not have the medical examiner talk about the uh, position of the, the bullet that killed him. Can you imagine any trial, any trial in any country, civilized country, not producing the one single, uh, single most important document that would be... Uh, the answer to the crime they didn't they didn't admit it because they didn't want to to open that door and talk about the guy who was behind him with the gun out i need to reveal something folks that's in my book and because donna's working on this right now she just mentioned uh, president kennedy and she also just mentioned uh, bobby kennedy and that is that there was a fella by the name of Jim Braden that was arrested moments after President Kennedy was killed in Dee Plaza. Oh, yeah. He had come out from a building called the Daltex building, which many people think some of the shots originated from. He was, uh, I shouldn't say arrested, he was questioned and then released because he had just changed his name from Eugene Braden to Jim Braden. Anyways, uh, as it turns out, this guy was a mafioso. He was a bag man. He had a list, as long as your arm, of uh, convictions, mostly petty crimes, but he was definitely connected to the mob. So he was, get this, he was questioned because he had gone into the Daltex building under the uh, presumption that he was looking for a telephone to call his mother to tell his mother that the president had been assassinated. <laughs> if you can believe that, I just want well, to... absolutely an interesting character, uh, somebody who's. Um, well, if you read the book, I'm sure you have uh, by a friend of mine, a, a newsman here in Los Angeles, uh, Pete Noyes. He wrote a book called Legacy of Doubt about Braiding mm-hmm. Braden, and um, my gosh, the stuff that is you know, was ignored about this guy who definitely had some questions worth asking. Uh, and, you know, nobody wanted to go there with him. You know, they had this all tied up. They had one guy they could lay it on and get, you know, get a rubber stamp committee to say, yes, it's it's one guy, don't look anywhere else, ignore the man behind the curtain. And... Um, or in the case behind the red curtain, <laughs> uh, you know. So for whatever their reasons, it was not properly investigated. And somebody like Braden definitely had some um, hinky uh, involvement in, and you know, what happened to him is just a real interesting story. And your book gets into that as well. As well, yeah. And I just want to say, folks. Uh, with the night Bobby Kennedy was killed, Braden was also picked up in Los Angeles this time, only a few blocks from where Bobby Kennedy lay dying in his own blood and uh, was questioned once again. Coincidence? I leave that up to you right. to decide. Right, right. 
The book is called, the books we're talking about tonight, what is called Final Exams, True Crime Cases from Cyril Wept with co-author Donna Kaufman, who's joined us tonight all the way from L.A. And the other books are called Crime Scene to Courtroom, and the other one From ones Crime are, Scene to Courtroom. Oh, my apologies, From Crime Scene okay. to Courtroom. And the other one is A Question of Murder. All three books can be found at www.nightfrightshow.com website. Get them all. I mean, this is a great time for this type of reading. You know, it's dark out there. It's getting, the days are getting much longer. Uh, not in L.A. so much, because I don't think L.A. ever sleeps kind of like New York. But certainly here in the North Country in Canada, you know, put the fireplace on, kick back once the kids have got their baths and everything. Or if you're a student going to university and you're up late studying and you need a break, nothing better. Than a good crime book like this. Well, and and I'm glad you said about students because uh, a lot of what we both try to do, Dr. Wecht and I, is is uh, break it down for a new generation. That when, as yes. I'm writing the JFK book now, that's what I did. I'm too. getting into all sorts of things that you know there there are people who weren't born then mm-hmm. who need to be educated about who was. JFK, why it mattered, That's right. what led to so many suspects, what led to him being a target of um, disapproval by so many people. And um, so that's that's really interesting. But also, in Pittsburgh, where Dr. West was the uh, uh, coroner for 19 years, the medical examiner's building is named for him, and there's the Cyril Wecht Institute of Forensic Science and Law at Duquesne University where um, young people who are going for graduate degrees in forensic science and law uh, really learn from the master about these cases and other cases and his views and and um, so if you're into if you're a student of these things or you just like to read uh, gripping um, mysteries. You know, don't read about, don't read fiction. Read nonfiction. And this is, you know, these are uh, cinematic, uh, strange stories that just couldn't be more accurate. And all the source information is right there, so it'll whet your appetite and keep you awake. <laughs> I think that's that. It, that's one of the reasons why I do the show is for the students, and that's why I wrote my book um, right. by doing. By doing the show, many folks didn't even know who Jack Ruby was. And Jack Ruby, folks, for those yeah. of you that are joining us, he was the fellow that killed Lee Harvey Oswald, the purported assassin of JFK, only three days later. And uh, How did you come to write this book? Uh, wh- what was your own involvement in the I case or your bet. knowledge? No, I'm it? kidding. <laughs> um, I start, it's a long, long story, but uh, essentially... After uh, I, I interviewed Ted Sorensen and he passed away, I realized that this was historical. And what he had told me confirming conspiracy, but not a coup d'etat, uh, was historical. And I had to get it in print. And then I'd realized that I'd interview all these wonderful first-person witnesses, including your friend and mine, Sherry Feaster, who's a crime scene investigator. Uh, mm. Mr. Chambers, who's a NASA physicist, and all the folks that were involved with the movie JFK, including Robert Groden, you're going to know all these names, Robert Groden, right, Jim Barnes, sure. uh, Jim DiEugenio, Lisa Pease, I said, I've got to, I'm going to put this together, 
because there's right. well, a whole you're certainly disconnect. dealing with the A team there. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, there's a big disconnect. I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I tell this, this story very often on the show. I did a, a show on the 100th anniversary of the Titanic, and I had people, students, university students, writing me after saying, thank you so much for doing the show. We had no idea it was a real story. But the classic email, Donna, are you ready for this? And this is from a 20-year-old student going to university, not college, not high school. What happened to Jack, which is the DiCaprio character, of course. Right, right. So I said, oh, boy, have we got a disconnect. Yeah. You know, and I get yeah, chance, you, you know, know, when I do a JFK show, I have to slow people, I have to slow the guests down sometimes and explain what the Warren Commission was what the church committee right. was, uh, his select committee on assassinations and all these things. But if we want to engage the new generation, that's what we have to do. Did Sorensen tell you that he wrote PT-109? No, it wasn't PT-109. Uh, you're thinking of um, uh, Courage, oh, what the heck was it called? Uh, Profiles and Courage. Profiles and Courage. Yeah. Um, he didn't write the whole thing. Uh, Sorensen's on record as saying that JFK wrote a lot of his speeches as well. I don't believe him. I think he was just carrying the, the torch forward. A yeah. lot of the stuff, after spending an afternoon with him, not just interviewing him, I realized JFK could not have been JFK. It was kind of like George Martin with the Beatles. Right. It wouldn't have been the same. Uh, you know, they, they tried different producers, and it just didn't work. Let's face it. There was only one Beatles, one George Martin. J right. JFK would not have been JFK without Sorensen to write those magical words. Uh, Sorensen, of course, needed a JFK. I'm not saying JFK wasn't the greatest president in the world or anything like that without Sorensen. But I think what's defining now, and we're very able to see in terms of JFK, um is that he had a magnificent team around him. I think Obama is of the same stature, and I'm going to catch hell for this, as JFK, but he hasn't mm -hmm. got the team. Whereas JFK had the team. And I, it mm -hmm. made a hell of a big difference, especially during the Cuban Missile Crisis, because Ted walks us through that, the night, the darkest night of his life, he calls it. So, uh, wow. very, very interesting stuff. Let's get back to you. <laughs> Well, but, no, but I, I appreciate you know what? hearing we, about that, uh, and and but, you know it, it's interesting to know that uh, JFK obsession is not uh, just a, an American uh, um, interest. So um, it certainly affected the world, and and what happens to our president certainly, you know, means a lot. And and the, we were living in the powder keg there then during this this time with Russia and, and um, Cuba and uh, Vietnam. I mean, so many, uh, so many challenges. Very and, interesting times. And it's funny how history is repeating itself right now in the Ukraine and the Middle East. Yeah. You know, it's, yes. it's, you know, it's very, well, it's not funny. It's tragic as, you know, the uh, people become um, complacent, I think, sometimes. Uh, I think that's dangerous as well. And that was the most appropriate description of him because everything he told the cops was just more fertilizer. 
if you will. Um, but some of the things that came out at trial, uh, he had been stringing on this girl, Amber, blonde, and uh, she was, you know, she didn't even know that he had a, a, a wife that was missing for a while. And then she saw him on TV and her friend said, hey, that's the guy that's on TV looking for his wife. So she, then she became sympathetic to, oh, you poor dear, you know. So Scott, at one point uh, on uh, on a New Year's Eve, um, went to, he called her and said, I, I have to go on business to Europe, and I'll call you from Europe. So he calls her and he says, oh, I'm in Copenhagen, and, you know, I twisted my leg on uh, the cobblestone walk there, and I... Uh, uh, you know, I, but it's wonderful. I'm enjoying all the food of, of Copenhagen, and it's just great, and I can't wait to come back here with you. And then a dog would start barking, and he said, oh, the hotel I'm in, this is crazy dog won't shut up, dog. And uh, so he says, well, I have to go. So then the next day he calls her from Paris, and he's talking about, oh, I had crepes here. I went to the Eiffel Tower, and I can't wait to bring you here, and we'll have a wonderful romantic time. And this restaurant that I found, it's just great. And then this dog starts barking. And it's the same dog that was barking in Copenhagen. And he's pretending that's not. He said, oh, but they have a problem with dogs here, you know. Well, it turns out that he was calling from his home in Modesto, just 90 miles from where she was. And it was his dog saying, Amber, you know, run for your life. He killed, uh, he killed Lacey. You're next. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know. His dog was really saying that, but that was his dog that Lacey had been taking for a walk right before she went missing. And um, you know, that I always thought that the dog was just trying to warn uh, the you know uh, next potential victim away from this guy. But uh, it was pretty funny. I mean, the arrogance of this guy making up these crazy concoctions to make himself grandiose and he is just you know typical psychopathic behavior by the way folks uh, I'm broadcasting from Kingston I'd mentioned the penitentiary before the maximum security penitentiary it was the former home of the Barbie and Ken killers they used to live just down the street from where I am right now so oh wow yeah. yes that's Barbie's out case. by the way Barbie's free yeah, Lock she's free, kids. and, and everyone kids. knows her new name, and she yeah. can't really hide. But I think she's got three children now, so she's got a quality of life that she doesn't deserve. But she, you know, that's the thing with court cases. Sometimes you have to make a, a deal with the devil. And when Carla Homolka was found guilty, and she turned on uh, Paul Bernardo, her husband, uh, for the series, I mean, he was just a horrible rapist and, and um, you know, even a rapist killer. They got off on doing this together. And her testimony helped put him behind bars forever. But it turned out that after uh, a while, they found these audio recordings of her showing that she wasn't just a passive... Uh, abused woman who was, uh, you know, not in favor of him killing these people. She was definitely a player in all of this and enjoying 
the experience. So to see that she's released on the public, and even if she's cleaned up her act, you know, we can't forget who she really is. That's a great case to read about. Yeah, that's just terrifying. Little tip for the for the young students that are out there. A lot of them are budding readers. When you come across a story, how do you discern from one to the next what to include in a book? Well, you know, when we cast our books for stories, again, it's like, uh, is it, I, I got to make sure that Dr. Weck's work in it for the defense is represented as well as his book, his his interest for the prosecution and or if it's a civil case, you know, so what is the case? The, the cases that don't interest me generally are gunshots because those are, there's not a lot of premeditation and I like that premeditation. Okay. I, I describe our work together as he's the CSI, the evidence uh, man and the body man and the autopsy guy. I'm the behavioral background person. I'm the cr- the criminal are, mind. Are you Mark Harmon and he's Ducky? Is that what you're trying to tell me? <laughs> uh, say that again? Are you Mark Harmon and he's Ducky? <laughs> you know what? I don't watch that show, but I, I you know, it's Criminal Minds is the one with the FBI okay. profilers, and that's, uh, I was trained by the best person in that, the guy who started that whole business. So, um, but, you know, there, we try to have a variety of causes of death and manners of death and different court systems and, you know, different outcomes and, and also what are the things that show new science and what have we learned on these cases? So that, that's what I find interesting. We're going to have to start to wrap up, but I want to thank both you and Dr. Wecht for coming on the show. Folks, our guest tonight has been Dr. Wecht in the first hour, Cyril Wecht. Mm-hmm. Donna Kaufman, there's a darn music, www.nightfrightshow.com. There you will find three book covers. Click on all three book covers. That'll take you right to a spot where you can get great books. Thank you so much, Donna. Thank you, Brand. I look forward to speaking to you on JFK. Absolutely. Take care, my friend.